Young Grillo, um, thanks for joining us at Public. Really um, appreciate having you. I've been um, reading your Substack for a long time. Um, I'm very interested in your area of expertise, which is um, the drug wars and specifically the drug wars in Mexico, um, where you're based, um, where you do your your very um, uh, glamorous and risque reporting <laughs> on cartel activity down there. Um, and I just want to preface this conversation by saying that, you know, I live in Oakland and have covered the um, drug crisis, the addiction crisis quite a bit here, um, especially across the Bay in San Francisco, <clears throat> where um, the open air drug market there is, I, I have to imagine, like one of the biggest uh, profit centers in the United States for the Sinaloa cartel and maybe also for the uh, Jalisco New Generation cartel, but for, for, certainly for Sinaloa. Um, and, uh, and so... You know, there's a lot of um, I've covered a lot of the political debate here and the main kind of lines of fissure um, are between uh, the harm reduction people and then the people who want to, um, uh, you know, put more social controls or law enforcement solutions in, in addition to housing and, and harm reduction, um, force treatment, things like that. But what's left out of that debate, which understandably, because it's not like we can do anything about it on a local level. But is the fact that there's this, this like engine just driving, just churning out this product, and so it's, to a certain extent, it's kind of like a, a a futile debate because as long as this stuff is just being pumped into the streets of San Francisco, it doesn't really matter what we do. We can only really contain this problem around the margins. So I, I wanted to talk to you a lot about sort of that connection and understand better what's happening abroad. Um, so uh, maybe I could start by asking you. Um, I read Sam Kinona's whose book, I'm, latest book, I'm sure you you probably read, um, has describes this the transition in the Sinaloa cartel from what used to be a top down structure to now what's more of sort of almost like a free market of like a cottage industry of uh, because anybody can produce because not anybody can grow a bunch of marijuana. You need land, you need water, you need all that stuff. That pretty much anybody can just with can create fentanyl if you get a, a, a hold of the precursor chemicals or meth, which is even easier. Um, so it's more of kind of an entrepreneurial industry of people just setting the stuff up and then selling it to the, the cartel as the supplier, the distributor. Is, is that how you – describe to me how you see the, the, the lower cartel organized. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, thanks. Great to be here. Thanks thanks for, for inviting me on and, um, yeah, for a bit of background. I'm, I'm originally from the UK. I've been in Mexico for – for 23 years now covering this um, kind of a crazy journey of covering the cartels and the crime here. And yeah, I got my, my stuff on, on Substack now, Crash Out Media, Narco Politics, CrashOutMedia.com mm -hmm. is the handle and Narco Politics, I think. So um, I would say in terms of, you've got in terms of the organization and the way it's moving uh, and in terms of how they're handling these substances, so really, when we talk about the cartels or the Sinaloa cartel, we're referring to a big network of drug traffickers that's been over a century in the making. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the word, the, you know, the term the Sinaloa cartel is fairly recent, but you can start seeing these drug trafficking networks going back over a century. When you first saw the United States start to restrict opium and cocaine back in 1915 after the, the kind of Harrison's Narcotics Tax Act, you saw 
trafficking from Mexico, from in from Sinaloa, where there there have been Chinese immigrants who had brought uh, opium poppies to the region, working in mm-hmm. the, the railroads and the mines there. Uh, and there's there's one of the, the the very first case, a U.S. judicial case on Mexican trafficking for the U.S. goes back to 1916. Uh, and there you see a group, and at that time again, it was it was Chinese Mexicans uh, trafficking um, opium to Chinese Americans, and this was the very beginning going back. Mm. Then over, you know, we can go through a lot of stuff there, but um, you can you know, create these big kingpins in in marijuana and in cocaine. Uh, you know, you had a uh, uh, Chapo Guzman, you know, El Chapo and and El Mayo and 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 Caro Quintero and these big kingpins. And the revolution to synthetic drugs um, has really been, you can look back over the last 15 years, very accelerated over the last couple of years. Well, we can see this acceleration, the beginnings of this really move to synthetic drugs over about 15 years. Um, and, and I think really going both before and after the synthetic drugs, it was always um, a lot of different um, narco business people involved in this. And also they, they developed more of a, um, you know, increasingly more and more a paramilitary wing. We can talk about paramilitary organized mm-hmm. crime to explain and get to the violence aspect. I think both all the time it's been um, a lot of different, you know, business people, traders involved. Um, and, you know, for, for, for a long time, they didn't claim and control and dominate territory in as much as they do these days. You know, for a long time, it was kind of free for all. Everyone could move where they liked. And it's been more recently where they demand uh, domination and control of territories. But if we look at the revolution to synthetic drugs, which is causing, um, I think, such a high level of death in the United States, and it's an area that obviously you uh, cover very closely and, and are very concerned about. Um, I mean, one thing I would mark is going back to this guy called Shen Li Yigong, mm-hmm. who was a Chinese-born, naturalized Mexican businessman who was importing the precursor ingredients to make crystal meth. Mm-hmm. And this was this started to really boom after in the US. So you had the US big kind of rise of crystal meth use. Then you had the Combat Methamphetamine Act in the United States. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the making of the, of the meth in the labs went down from the US to Mexico and to these big super labs. And they needed a large amount of they had a big business opportunity that they took, and the cartels, the, the traffickers here have been very, um, you know, adept at taking these seizing business opportunities again, and again, and again mm-hmm. over the years. They're very adept businessmen, mm-hmm. and they, they they took this opportunity and they had this this guy Shen Yigong bringing in the precursor ingredients from China and selling them back to the Sinaloa cartel, then and factions the Sinaloa cartel, as well as to other cartel, other gangsters. He was not as experienced at money laundering as the Mexican traffickers are themselves. So he had in his house in Mexico City $207 million in cash, <laughs> big stacks of cash, mm-hmm. uh, when it was raided in 2007. He was going up, flying up to Las Vegas, where he spent in Vegas over $100 million in cash. Oh, my God. And he was raided, I'm sorry, was he raided by the Federalists, by the Marines? His house was raided in Mexico City by the Mexican um, uh, military uh, with Mexican uh, federal police 
uh, and, and I think it was some military support and it came yes, from the Attorney General's office. But at the time, he was actually in the United States when this happened. Is it the Vegas connections interesting because he was basically laundering money through Vegas? They mm. were, he was spending over 100 million, but they give him money back. And, you know, there's a lot of interesting side stories there. He bought one, one uh, dealer he liked, uh, a, a woman. He, he bought her a million dollar house, you know, in Vegas and stuff. And he eventually um, was arrested in the United States. Um, there's a crazy story. I was working for the, the, the uh, Associated Press news agency at the time, and we actually interviewed him in the US for the AP when he was mm. on the run. He gave a bit of a kind of crazy interview where he accused the Mexican government of setting him up. But he was eventually arrested in the United States. Um, they were going to charge him in the United States, or, or they were going to, you know, then they, after they said they couldn't get much information from China and various reasons, witnesses flipping, they ended up extraditing him to Mexico, and he's still here in Mexico now, still hasn't been sentenced. His, ma- his mansion where the money uh, was seized, that's where they are today, it's still right there. And, you know, it's, it's, being, uh, it's up for sale now, in fact. Mm-hmm. But he, he was one of the people who really made this, this, this business link between Chinese pharmaceutical companies and Mexican drug traffickers, which has mm-hmm. really powered the explosion later in fentanyl. So you saw, first of all, the explosion in crystal meth. Now, crystal meth... Um, you know, it, it became a big deal. It was seen as a big deal in, in the 2000s, a big story, people dying of, of crystal meth, people with meth mouth and going crazy and so forth. Then people kind of forgot about it from a news point of view. Uh, as, as I'm sure you know, the problem was still there in a very, very big way. <clears throat> and we saw gradually more and more, you know, cocaine losing value in the United States, so the mm-hmm. European market booming. And... You know, after a time, you saw this big change. An interesting sea change was more crystal meth seized on the southern border than cocaine. Why was why was coke losing value in the U.S. just as uh, people were preferred meth? I think one big reason was that cocaine was always massively overvalued. Uh-huh. Um, if uh, you know, I've, <laughs> I like to say this line: if if there was somebody who invented. Uh, as a marketing genius, inventing coke, you know, putting out cocaine, they, they would have given marketing water to century. I mean, mm-hmm. they got cocaine sold as this amazingly glamorous drug that people would pay, you know, two hundred dollars sometimes for a gram, or down a hundred dollars for a gram of this. You can invite a woman into the restroom, so you want to come in here for a, for some cocaine. You had Woody Allen sneezing over cocaine, and you know, you had a you know front page of Time magazine. The way it was sold to to American people, particularly. And the glamour it had, it was always very, very high price. That's why you know you got a lot of people made huge amounts of money at cocaine. A lot of Mexican traffickers, a lot of Colombian traffickers made you know huge amounts, billions from this stuff. It was a very overvalued product, especially what considering what it really cost to make. Now, also you've had more recently um, the Colombian government abandoning the idea of uh, eradicating coca leaves, so you've had a mm-hmm. real boom of production. Um, so a lot of cocaine being churned out. So it's being churned out, and the prices just kind of got driven down. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so, so that's, you know, that's one thing as well, but, uh, but also people, you know, people are liking, uh, crystal meth, uh, in the, uh, in the streets in the U S the kind of crack epidemic thing obviously kind of burned its way out. Mm-hmm. So crystal meth, um, became bigger, but then you had this move to fentanyl. Now you can see early signs, um, of Mexican traffickers getting into fentanyl. So they're very adept at, uh, innovation. They see this. But it's really happened, you know, kind of had this steady kind of boil for a while. We talked about fentanyl going back to kind of, you know, 2010s and stuff, kind of it popping up here. 
But then suddenly this real boom, um, really the last two to three years, you suddenly see the switch. And again, another historic figure, I would say, is when you had more fentanyl than heroin being mm-hmm. seized on the southern border. And then it just went off the charts where fentanyl is like way above the amount of heroin. It's actually very hard to get heroin now. And in, in, in San Francisco, we've talked to users and it's like, it's just nobody uses it anymore. So it's like, you have to actually try to go get heroin. And by the way, if you're a user who still uses heroin, you're kind of a responsible user because that means you've made the, you've, you, you have to go and hunt it down and you've made the, the commitment not to use fentanyl. Um, it's kind of the, it's, the vinyl, the vinyl records of, of drugs. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, another another side note on that is you had you had a big boom of heroin production in Mexico um, in the 2010s, a massive boom. Particularly when they started legalizing marijuana, and I was a big advocate of, of legalizing marijuana to try and take money away from cartels, um, uh, thinking this might help beat cartels, and I and I'm, I think I was wrong on that. Uh, fact, it didn't. Um, yeah, I still broadly support marijuana legalization, but uh, but um, the, cart- think, the, the cartels in Humboldt County are more active than ever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for a bunch of reasons, a bunch of the reasons that that's uh, that's uh, didn't um, you know weaken cartels, but also um, so yeah, they had a big boom of heroin production, and then then suddenly the price of opium went up, and you had all these cartels making a lot of money off heroin, and then now all the opium production's gone down. And all the opium producers here have gone bust. You know, all these mm-hmm. guys who are growing opium for that, they're all going bust. The cartels around those areas are then switching now. A big thing they're switching to now is mining. I mean, taking over gold mines, which is in Mexico, shaking down gold mines or just or just running wildcat mining. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff. And we're getting, you know, get that. I mean, the, the cartels in Mexico that are, are um, very diverse. Yeah, um, diversifying, I was going to say. Organized mm-hmm. paramilitary organized crime. They're into human smuggling in a massive way. I mean, they're making you know billions out of human smuggling, oil theft, sex trafficking, um, uh, uh, extortion, kidnapping, all of these different crimes. So, but this real move to fentanyl, the real acceleration has happened um, very fast the last couple of years, um, and I think you know it. it you know, it was suddenly going to hit me when I, you know, look at these numbers and I thought, okay, right, this is this is real big now. Because for a long time, people were talking about uh, synthetic drugs, and it was kind of a small niche where they're still making the big money from cocaine, the big money from heroin, the big money from marijuana for a long time, and then bang, these synthetic drugs just become, you know, change. So they've changed the business model in terms of what they're doing. You know, these people, you know, then you have um, people importing precursor ingredients um, from many cases from china but also from a bunch of different countries um and you know labs here in mexico so it's changing the the, the structure there from uh, growing opium and having the the certain regions which were big on growing opium or, or growing coca making that you know down in colombia growing marijuana to these you know bringing these in so ports are important to control mm-hmm. um is the biggest port in mexico on the pacific with about 3 million containers coming in every year, a lot of stuff coming in from China. But even then it gets more complicated because then the fentanyl and some of the precursors can be so small that they don't even have to necessarily use ports. They can use air packaging. They can use these kind of freights. They can use commercial freight companies. And even, and this is kind of a crazy kind of thing, they can even import into the United States precursors, take them down to Mexico, 
flip it to fentanyl, then take it back into the United States. So there's all kind of kind of things happening. There. Because is it illegal to import precursor fentanyl chemicals into the United States? Well, not necessarily illegal to import precursor chemicals. They could be for a for a legitimate commercial use. If right. you look at this, there's an interesting case uh, profile in one uh, one story I wrote recently, um, where they they went after these uh, arrested some Chinese pharmaceutical executives, mm-hmm. and they were selling precursors for fentanyl. And what they did was the your if you you're doing this with the intent to make fentanyl, you're you're breaking the law. Mm-hmm. So the, even though the, the the precursor itself might be legal, we know. And then these guys, they had them on tape saying and had them on email. Now, in this particular case, it's very interesting. You get this uh, this pharmaceutical company in China, and they had a DEA uh, informant confidential source in contact with them. Mm-hmm. So they're saying, I want to make fentanyl. And they're saying, oh, yeah, fine. Yeah, we, we know we can help you. You know, we've got, we got a lot of guys in Mexico doing that. They can help you out if you want and so forth. So they had this stuff. Then they, then they, they, went, they went over there and met up with them, first in Thailand and then sending money. You know, often it was through Bitcoin and stuff, sending this money, getting the, got a first batch sent. Then went to discuss for a second batch in Fiji. In hmm. Fiji, the Fijian police arrested the Chinese nationals put them on a plane, sent them to Hawaii and they were put before a judge in Hawaii. Mm. And the Chinese government, you know, came back and said, Oh, you can't do this. This is abduction. <laughs> mm-hmm. but it, does get, and it does get into to, to a shady legal area. And you see this done a lot of with drag, big drug traffickers in the past. There was a, a famous guy uh, in the cocaine trade going back from Honduras called uh, Mata Ballesteros. Uh, who's currently in the Supermax prison. And, and I interviewed his son, in fact, in Honduras some years ago. Uh, but Mata Ballesteros, huge trafficker, linking Colombian to Mexican cartels, really big in his time. Um, and he was arrested um, and given to U.S. marshals in Honduras, flown to the Dominican Republic and then flown into the U.S. So basically uh, an abduction rather than a legal extradition process. The judge ruled that it was an abduction, but says still the guy's still guilty. So they're still going to put mm-hmm. him in prison. Mm-hmm. And so this, this does happen as well as, as, as a tactic for going after drug traffickers. So how, how vertically integrated is the Sinaloa operation? Like, are they they're, they're I assume that they're, you know, paying off uh, officials at the ports in order to bring in the, the precursor chemicals. Uh, they're obviously, um, uh, to, you know, uh, controlling physical territory and they're controlling distribution networks. Uh, I do know for a fact that they're not employing directly the retail sellers on the streets in like San Francisco, for example. Those guys work for themselves and are just supplied by by Sinaloa. I mean, they're, the relationship is similar to like an Uber driver to Uber. You know, they're entirely dependent upon the cartel, but they don't work directly for them. Um, and then the, in terms of the manufacturers, are those people like are those members of the cartel who are manufacturing it? Or is it a similar situation where it's just like you know, any old person can manufacture meth and then, and then they sell it to the cartel to distribute. Yeah. Yeah. So this gets into a fascinating conversation. It's an, it's uh, about the nature of the organized crime and really how they operate when you get into the kind of nitty gritty of this. And, you know, they vary, these different cartels vary in their organizations and so forth. 
Um, but these are really always are, are, are networks of criminal businessmen with these kind of paramilitary wings and influence and so forth that have developed over some time. Now, we see this in different ways. So we see the territory of Sinaloa itself. Mm-hmm. So you have, um, within that as well, you have different factions and powerful players in the cartel. Mm-hmm. If we look at Culiac, the city of Culiacan, the powerful players there are the Chapitos, the sons of El Chapo. And they're really the powerful players in Culiacan and running and controlling Culiacan. Mm-hmm. If you go north to Baderejuato territory, which is a big traditional drug trafficking territory, the power player there is the brother of El Chapo, El Juano, who really controls and is the kind of power player and godfather of that area. If you go south um, and you start south towards Durango, you get the territory of El Mayo Zambada. So first you get the kind of roots of ter- you know, controlling territories of these places. Um, and, and then you get controlling of, you know, traditional controlling of, of border territory, no, a, a border territory. Um, if you go to somewhere like, you know, Ciudad Juarez, where you have a, a cartel, it's messy, the cartel there, but people controlling this area. And so these people themselves, the cartel controlling it, moving drugs through, but also taxing other people who move drugs through their territory. So mm-hmm. you, if you move and you're not working directly for them, it's not their drugs, you pay a quota to them. Now, when you get down to... The, so the people operating and, and, and moving, you have a lot of these like narco businessmen who are like working with inside the territory of the Chapitos, and they could be paying a quota to them or selling drugs to them directly. Mm-hmm. But you have a lot, of, there's a lot of opportunity for people to kind of within this uh, narcotic, you know, this kind of organized crime system. Then it gets confusing because somebody could as well could be paying, um, you know, you talk to people really in this who are moving and operating at different levels. Like one a group of gun traffickers I talked to who were paying um, two different organized crime groups the right to move in their territory, one for the right to traffic over the border and one for the right to sell in this particular town. So you can pay off quotas to different you know, organized crime groups in control of these areas. Now, when we get to... Now, you, you also get these, these high-level, powerful narco businessmen. We can see some of this stuff now has come out in court testimonies. Um, there's a very interesting trial of the former public security secretary of Mexico, General Garcia Luna. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I've met him personally. I'd met him going back some years when he was working. I'd covered some of this stuff. You know, under him, they made... The biggest cocaine seizure ever, 23 tons of cocaine. Biggest at that time, 22 tons of cocaine. Um, they burned it in a bonfire in front of people. Then you had him in court. You know, eventually he was done for trafficking drugs. And, you know, you know, they did one gangster described in court how they'd actually, that wasn't the real cocaine they were burning. They'd made mm-hmm. false cocaine, swapped it for the real cocaine, and burned the false cocaine. So you kind mm-hmm. of, like, damn, I'm kind of watching a real simulation here. But also, very interestingly, in the trial, you had some big gangsters testifying against him about how they would pay off high-level federal authorities. So it'd be like these gangsters, this is a Sinaloa cartel, they would come together and say, okay, we're going to pay off, uh, we want to give this guy $10 million a month. Mm-hmm. So everyone chips in, these different traffickers. So Mayo's got to chip in, he's creating all this money from that zone. Uh, Chapino. So these different zones are chipping in money 
for this big pool of money to pay off very high level federal protection for their drug trafficking operations. Now, when you get to the port of Manzanillo, um, and I was there recently, in port of Manzanillo, three million containers coming through. And they pay, there's one guy who's very, a veteran guy in importing, exporting through this port. And he said the cost was to bring in a container with drugs, basically, was about the bribe was 800,000 pesos. So like about Mm -hmm. $50,000 paying bribe through an intermediary guy. You pay that and the container goes through. Mm -hmm. No questions asked. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's paying to kind of intermediary people who are in, in, in the port area. And then how high up does the corruption go? Like, is it, are they the, the, first of all, do, do, do the cartels, um, have influence over elections in Mexico? Um, and then is it, is there reason to believe that the cartel's power goes all the way up to, you know, the presidential administration level? So yeah, the, the, uh, go, go for the tough questions there, 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 there. The, 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 uh-huh. the dangerous questions there, right in there. No, but the um, um, no, the, the, this is quite well documented. The the the, the, the cartels, uh, you, you can see what's happened in Mexico, in, you know, over the last two decades. Um, you know, I call it the Mexican drug war. Mexico's drug war. It's about more than drugs. It's about say all kinds of illegal activities. It's about political power. It's about control of territory. Um, you know, and these big paramilitary groups. Um, but yeah, there, there's been a, um, they've gained power over politics of all kinds of levels and over elections. Now, this, this, this corruption still is more complicated, but I'll give some, exo- some solid examples for people to, to get from the theoretical to really stuff they can kind of see and imagine. So first in terms of corruption of, of police forces. It can, it, can, it can be at all level, it can be, you know, it can be military, federal police or, or state police. But one state police officer who was kind of known to journalists, nicknamed L. Tyson, because he was kind of well-built like Mike Tyson, a big kind of thick neck. And he, um, you know, well-known you know, journalists would like him to say hello to journalists and stuff in Michoacan State, where he, where he was. Eventually he was arrested, not only for being a drug trafficker, for being a high-ranking member of the cartel, and not only for turning a blind eye. And I, I did, just did a recent just did a story about uh, corruption in the border patrol, how border yeah. patrol were like great uh, story, uh, yeah, allowed drugs to come through and stuff. But this is a very very different level. This guy was not only just turning a blind eye. This guy was actively not only actively committing murders uh, and you know massacres. He would even be training the young recruits to like chop up bodies to lose the fear of blood. And they got him, they gave this, this guy gave this insane confession, which they put on the TV news. Mm -hmm. This is a a state police commander. So this is the kind Mm -hmm. of level of involvement with these guys with cartels. Mm -hmm. If we look at the political uh, power, so for a long time, you had mayors. Now, mayors is one of the basic levels of political power. So a lot of time, a mayor, you know, you have a mayor, he controls a local police force, could have them on your payroll. He can help you control the territory, get drugs through, so forth. So a long time, mayors are getting paid money from the cartel. But then recently they flipped that deal and be like, well, mayors have to pay us. So we're going to take 10% of your city budget. Jesus. 
And then we get uh-huh. Rulikis to, to knock a controller, knock a producer. And then it's always like, well, get rid of the mayor. We're just going to put one of our guys in there. I mean, so no, it's basically as if like the, the, the real government has to essentially like rent their legitimacy from the cartel. They have to like pay for the, for the, pay for the privilege of acting like they're the actual government. Yeah, I mean, or maybe you, you, you get to be the mayor, you get to have 90% of your budget at least, and you know, and you might just like just not, you know, avoid talking about crime and stuff and just pretend there's no real bad crime and stuff, which is what some of them do. Um, but, you know, they're there. Now, in terms of elections, and we've seen this, particularly with the Sinaloa cartel, um, in fact, in, you know, you've always, you've had a long time of, of, of using um, armed groups to influence elections in Mexico, kind of physical intimidation. Um, you know, groups of thugs. I remember covering an election in Tabasco State some years ago when there's a group of thugs intimidating people and we actually surround them as reporters and we're like asking them, like, who are you guys? You know, what? And they're like, oh, we just, we just came from the, we just like recruited from the barrio to come here and just like, you know, like, you know, have a few baseball bats and just like threaten people. At the, you know. um, so it's kind of been going for a long time, but the cartels are kind of taking over this because they've got the kind of armed power. So the idea you can, you can intimidate and you can help deliver votes for certain people. So that now you see this in not only in Mexico, you see this across um, Latin America in various countries. You see this in Jamaica traditionally in a very big way. You see this in Honduras. You see this, um, you know, in, in large many places across the continent. This kind of idea. So this idea of what these paramilitary organized crime become in the twenty first century, um, they become you know real political power players. Now you ask how I, how high up this goes. Now. Um, there's certainly accusations of it going up very high. We've got, you know, uh, members of the cabinet convicted, you know, historic members of the cabinet, like I said, who are convicted of working with drug traffickers. In terms of presidents, we had, you know, um, the brother of a former president, uh, Salinas, Raul Salinas' brother, Carlos Salinas, Salinas, accused in an investigation. He wasn't convicted of this, but accused in a Swiss investigation because he had hundreds of millions of dollars in Swiss bank accounts of running vertically from the top, overseeing this control of drug trafficking. And there's accusations that continue into the present administration. Mm-hmm. So you know, it go, can go very high. Now, one of the things is as well, though, is within Mexico, because you have such widespread corruption, there's almost any player coming into this, um, even if they want to try and do the right thing, have to accept your governing over an extremely corrupt violent situation and how you know how do you try and rule over this you've reached the end of this episode of the free version of public's podcast to access the full version become a paying subscriber at public.substack.com